Every search you make, every click you take, they'll be watching you. Tired of companies like Google and Facebook watching everything you do online? There's actually a simple solution. DuckDuckGo. It's an all-in-one privacy app with a built-in private search engine, web browser, one-click data clearing, email protection, and more. All for free. Download the app today and get the most comprehensive privacy protection with the push of a button. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Hello, everyone. This is Rosie Tran, and welcome to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weibo.tv special report sponsored by our friends at DuckDuckGo. You may have heard my voice at the end of every episode on Weibo.tv. I'm the one asking you to leave a review. Which, by the way, I hope you've done, right? You've left us a review? Okay, great. Unless you're lying. <clears throat> well, I'm a lot more than a voice. I'm also Weibo.tv's intrepid reporter, and over the course of this miniseries, I'm going to share with you short, actionable tips you can use to protect your privacy. These tips were sourced by our fearless leader, he really hates when we call him that, BJ Mendelson. BJ, for those of you who may not know, is the author of the book Privacy and How We Get It Back, a book that was published in the before times. This means before COVID. BJ is currently writing a sequel called How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So everything we're going to hear in this miniseries is the most up-to-date information he's researched, bringing us into 2023 and beyond. As a bonus episode for our listeners, here's BJ's interview with Corey Doctorow. Corey, thank you so much for joining us today. Would you be so kind as to introduce yourself for our audience? Sure. My name's Corey Doctorow. I'm a science fiction novelist, activist, and journalist. And I'm most recently the author with Rebecca Giblin of a book called Chokepoint Capitalism, which is about how uh, concentration affects creative labor markets. Yeah, I think a lot of people listening to this, because we generally try to go for a general audience, uh, might have seen this in the news recently with Taylor Swift and Ticketmaster and Live Nation. And that's something you touch on quite extensively in the book. So I, I have to ask before we dive into it, uh, have you been happy with what you've seen so far with with that drama? Or is there something that you, know, you think is needed that just hasn't happened yet? Look, anything that can't go on forever will eventually stop. And the situation with market concentration in the creative arts is so iniquitous and so just villainous that it will provoke crises in the years to come. And in fact, a lot of this book is about how we respond to those crises. And this is one of those crises. And um, I don't want to let a good crisis go to waste, but I'm <laughs> realistic. And uh, what I think happens when you have these very esoteric uh, phenomena like market concentration and backroom deals and self-preferencing, all this stuff, you know, obscure, bad contracts, is that... Um, you know, people pay attention to them during the spectacle and then their attention wanes, not because they're like shallow, but because there are more immediate things pressing on your interests, things that are uh, uh, right in front of your face. And, and so what you get in these struggles is at the beginning, you have a world in which most people don't care about the issue because it's so far away and so hard to understand. And then a crisis breaks and a lot of people briefly care about the issue. And then most of them forget about it, but some of them don't. And so the next time the crisis hits, because anything that is genuinely wrong that you don't address will continue to get worse and will continue to provoke crises, more people will get engaged uh, very briefly, and then some of them will remain engaged. And this is how movements build. They lurch from crisis to crisis, and a few more people stick around each time as they understand 
what the long run trajectory of this is. So you can see this, for example, in the context of the climate emergency, that, you know, each crisis makes a few more partisans. And really, I think the the job here of the activist is not to um, uh, sit back and wait for the crisis to become so bad that everyone comes over to your side, because often that's beyond the point of no return. I think it's to explain these issues, to capitalize on these crises, to contextualize them, and to make people understand that this is something worth getting involved with over the long haul and not just a thing that you should pay attention to, you know, while the, the forests around your house are on fire. You need to actually address yourself to the climate emergency, uh, even when things aren't on fire. Right. And you have a what I think is probably the best way to describe this current situation that I've come across. And I read a lot of books. So uh, it's the analogy that you use in the book of the, the coffee shop. And I was wondering if you could just explain that a bit for people that are listening. I don't remember that analogy. <laughs> I okay. usually use the analogy of the bullied kid getting lunch money. Could you could you refresh me? Yeah. Yes. So the analogy with the coffee shop is it's not just this, you walk into a coffee shop and someone is controlling the price. Someone also controls the property and the parking and the manufacturing and the distribution. Every single aspect of that coffee shop's operation is controlled by one company. Sure. Okay. Yes. Vertical integration. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, normally in a market, you assume that all of the different parts are decomposed in some way that, you know, as you say, the, the car that brings you to the coffee shop is not the, uh, made by the company that brews the coffee. And, and indeed that's not the company that made the coffee brewing machine and so on. And while some vertical integration can produce efficiencies, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to have apps that are tailored for your phone. If you can't break out of that uh, of that arrangement, if you have to use the thing that was designed to work with the thing you already have, then that company has you over a barrel. They they can force you into increasingly negative arrangements, and we see that with app marketplaces. We see that with with other vertically integrated marketplaces, and it's why historically, really, just up until the Reagan era, we used to be very skeptical of vertical integration. And firms that practiced it were subject to a lot of very painful antitrust scrutiny from the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission. But beginning with the Reagan era, and then you know continuing in a bipartisan fashion through every administration since except the Biden administration, which has staged quite a dramatic reversal, we have seen an increasing tolerance, not just for vertical integration, where, you know, one company like like Ticketmaster Live Nation controls um, all the significant venues, has the exclusive right to book all the most uh, profitable artists, also sells all the tickets, uh, and, and so on and so on up and down the chain and is able to extract a lot of junk fees that way and, and um, cut artists out of the revenue they're generating while costing the fans more and more money and ultimately hurting the artist and the fans. Um, but, but, uh, also, you know, we're becoming increasingly skeptical of horizontal mergers. So, uh, all of the music that you will listen to 70% of all the recorded music in the world is controlled by three companies uh, Sony, Time Warner Music, and uh, Universal, and they didn't um, uh, come into possession of all these music copyrights by investing in artists and nurturing their careers. They did it by gobbling up all their smaller competitors to create these big horizontal monopolies. So these horizontal and these vertical monopolies historically were treated as, as suspect for 40 years, were increasingly welcome. And now once again, we're starting to treat them as suspect, but it's going to take a long time 
to change the structure of the market. Uh, breaking up AT&T took 69 years. So it might be a very long time before we have a, a different kind of, of marketplace. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And it doesn't mean, as, as we point out in the books, that there aren't a lot of remedies that don't involve breaking companies up or that are things that we can do while we're breaking companies up that can take effect much, much more quickly. Yeah, that was something that I really liked about the book, because I think sometimes it's easy just to, to read something like this and throw up your hands and be like, uh, there's nothing that nothing we can do. But you make a great point in that there are really great, strong antitrust laws here in the United States. We just don't enforce them. That's right. And and not just antitrust laws, but a kind of whole of government approach where contract law and, and um, employment law and so on, they all come in to how artists living is produced, you know, for, for 40 years, you know, the impetus for this book was that for 40 years, copyright has expanded. It, copyright now lasts longer, covers more works and more kinds of works. Uh, it, the statutory damages have gone through the roof, $250,000 per copy. And, and it's easier than ever to prove an infringement and get those damages. And the entertainment industries have gotten bigger. They're, they're bigger and more profitable than they've ever been. And yet the share of income, both proportionally and in real terms, that the creative workers who generate that income have come in for uh, has only declined over those 40 years. And it shows you the problem of just, you know, saying, well, look, I, I, I you know, I, for whatever reason, I don't want to try steering this car with a steering wheel. I'm just going to see if there's a way that I can toggle the windshield wipers that'll make the car go in the direction that I want it to. And, you know, sometimes you have to recognize that there are other ways to steer things. Antitrust law is one of them. But, you know, if, if you have a a royalty arrangement because you're a musician or you make games or you write books or, or you um, uh, make music uh, or films, um, you get the right to audit the company that's paying you those royalties. And when you do audit them, you'll often find an error. And that error is almost always in their favor. Uh, we cite one firm here in Los Angeles that's done tens of thousands of audits over decades. And there was only one instance in all those audits of record company contracts that they had found uh, an overpayment to an artist. In every other instance, it was an overpayment to the label out of the artist's pocket. It was wage theft. We, we can only assume that the reason that the uh, results break this way is because some of some kind of very vexing and pernicious uh, localized probability storm in the accounting departments of the record labels. It must be very hard to work under those conditions. But nevertheless, when you find this wage theft and you say, hey, pay me the money you owe me, the label or the studio or the publisher is going to say, you know, you artists are adorable, but you can't do math. We don't owe you that money. But because we know you can't afford to sue us, we don't want any hard feelings here. How about if we pay you a share of the money you think we owe you? We'll settle. You just have to sign this non-disclosure agreement whereby you promise not to tell anyone else we're stealing from where we've hidden their money. Uh, and also your accountant has to promise that they will never audit us because now they know where we hide the money we steal. And... Um, those contracts, they're a matter of state law. Uh, they, they're settled in four states, New York and California, Washington State because of the games companies and, the, the, and Amazon, and, and then, you know, uh, Tennessee because of uh, Nashville. And contract is a matter of state law. So if we amended those state contract, the, the, the state contract laws to say non-disclosure cannot be enforced where it pertains to material omissions or misstatements and royalty statements, 
then at the stroke of a pen, we will put more money in the pockets of more artists all over the world than 40 years of copyright term extensions combined. You know, this is the crack in the machine that we stick a crowbar in, wiggle it around, money pours out of the machine and into the pockets of artists. And whereas extending copyright has primarily been for artists extending the right to get angry at your fans, um, doing this would actually put braces on your kid's teeth and a roof over your head and and pay for your retirement, some groceries. So that's the things we uh, attune ourselves to. The second half of the book is full of these. And you said earlier that it's easy to read one of these books and throw up your hands because there's nothing you can do. And actually... There is nothing any one of us can do. There are None of these are individual solutions. In fact, we had an editor reject the book. He said he really liked it, but because all of the solutions in the back half of the book were systemic solutions and not things an individual reader could do, that readers would be bummed out and wouldn't enjoy the book. And we said, you know, dude, you are so close to getting it, but you are not going to recycle your way out of climate change. You are not going to shop your way out of monopoly capitalism. The only way that you're going to solve this is systemically. So the thing you can do as an individual is think of yourself as part of a group, find that group and work on the system. But you're not going to make a difference. You individually, heroically standing in front of the machine, holding up a hand and shouting halt. And, yes. uh, and, and, and that is something that we're quite adamant about. Uh, and, and again, you know, back to this idea that's anything that can't go on forever will eventually stop. There have been many crises in the entertainment industry and there will be more. And when these crises hit, Oftentimes, the solutions that are proposed are ones that end up enriching and increasing the hold of these big entertainment companies. But artists sometimes support them because doing something is viewed as better than doing nothing. And they don't know what else they can do. And so that's why we wrote this book, so that we could make counteroffers. The next time Congress or the European Parliament is ready to make a change, we can show up and say, great, we do want a change. We want one of these changes, these changes that will affect not just how profitable the industry is, but the distributional outcomes of that profit that will affect the share that goes to the artists. I'm a Facebook hipster. I then deleted my Facebook account and then re-upped it in 2005 and have not been able to get off the stupid thing since. So, so why can't you get off? So what, what are your, <laughs> you guys. The award-winning Smashing Security Podcast, hosted by Graham Cluley and Carol Terrio each week. It takes an irreverent look at cybersecurity and online privacy, helping you find out what's happening with your data. Find it in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps, or at smashingsecurity.com. It's not all filth. And I, you know, something that I really liked is the focus on that state level, because it's so much easier for someone that reading the book and for people to, to band together and contact a state assemblyman or a state senator as opposed to you know a federal, uh, you know the uh, someone on the federal level. For me, for example, I have um, uh, Jim Scoofus, who's a state assemblyman, and then Senator Schumer is my my federal representative. Right to be to to reach out to Senator Schumer to get him to do anything. Good luck. Yeah, he's got but, a lot going on. He does, but you know the state assemblyman gets right back to you, and I think that's really important because I, sure. I think people overlook 
that local that local level of activism. Yeah, and you know, we 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 have interventions at the federal level, we have interventions at the state level, we have regulatory and legislative interventions, we have things that standards bodies can do, we have things that technologists can do, we have things that local governments can do. So one of our case studies is of um, uh, the library system in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where they have uh, an alternative to Spotify that only features local bands that pays the the bands much more money for the inclusion of their music, and that has a unique and listener friendly arrangement where you pay to, to, to stream a song a very small amount of money but if you pay that sum enough times if you listen to that song over and over again then you own it you get to download it and you don't you don't have to pay to, to stream it anymore so you, you really like pay a very small amount of money to sample all the music coming out of your community but the artists get paid a, a reasonable amount of money and then you don't get ripped off you don't have to buy the same music over and over again so it's a really uh, great arrangement and it's a thing that your local library system can do uh, pretty straightforwardly and pretty cheaply. And one of the great things about, about libraries, and I'm a visiting professor of library science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, is they really like sharing their technology and services with each other. There's a, a great spirit of comedy uh, uh, not comedy, comedy among, uh, among, and comradeship among librarians. And they, they share their software, they share their systems, and they share their tools like crazy. Yeah, I, I, that was one of my favorite examples from the book. I, it's something that I immediately started to look into uh, here in New York. Let me ask you, just speaking about Spotify real quick, I don't think people quite understand when it comes to Spotify, the the data gathering operation, the data gathering side sure. of it and how that's used. And I'd love it if you would be able to illuminate that a bit. Yeah, well, so Spotify does all the normal um, app stuff. Um, if you've got a browser, you might have a, uh, a, a tracker blocker or an ad blocker. A lot of times now they come built in, uh, but you probably don't have one of those for your apps. Um, iOS, which is the Android, which is the iPhone operating system does now have a one click opt out of most tracking, but not Apple's. So Apple actually does an extraordinarily invasive degree of tracking of its own customers. Even if they opt out of tracking, it just opts them out of tracking by its competitors. But if you've got, you know, an app, it's going to spy on you a lot. It's going to gather all kinds of, of data on you, uh, your location, you know, every, every uh, keystroke, every character you type and so on. Spotify does the same, all the usual. Um, they also uh, have this kind of twofer where they organize music and playlists that are uh, sorted by mood. Uh, so you have, you know, music for a depressed teenager or whatever. And those playlists, they have uh, a couple of advantages for Spotify. So one is that if you listen to albums, and you quit Spotify, all those albums are available on every Spotify rival. But if you listen to playlists, those playlists don't come with you when you leave. So it creates some switching costs, some friction. It also creates an opportunity to, to extort bribes from musicians. So they can say, look, if you want to be included on this popular playlist, you're going to have to waive the infinitesimal sum of money that you're entitled to when your music is played on Spotify. It, and finally, it, it lets them um, source uh, music from soundalikes. So if you listen to any of the sort of chill playlists of electronica, you may notice that gradually those playlists, all of the artists you've heard of get replaced by artists you've never heard of. And they're always from Sweden, where, where Spotify is headquartered. Spotify is uh, is is paying local artists a flat fee to make music that they insert into these playlists in preference to the music that uh, is earns royalties for its creators. So all of that is going on. But at the same time, 
if you're listening to the depressed teenager playlist, Spotify can sell you to advertisers who wanted to advertise to depressed teenagers. And so that becomes yet another signal used for Spotify's targeted ad business. Uh, and, and really, it's one of those things where you can see that um, a monopoly can be used to abuse listeners or customers, but the monopsony, right, which is where you have a powerful buyer, which is what Spotify is in relationship to musicians who must be on Spotify to earn a living and, and therefore get terms dictated to them by Spotify, that that monopsony also sits alongside of the monopoly. It's, it's, it's very hard to have a monopsony without a monopoly. And it's very hard to have a monopoly without a monopsony. And once you have it, you're going to abuse in both directions. You're going to you're going to suck your uh, supply chain dry up and down the chain. Yeah, and so the reason why I, I wanted to steer us a little bit to Spotify is you you make a great point in the book that uh, Shosanna Zuboff in the age of surveillance capitalism is, and many many people in the past decade have argued that all this data collection is leading to a possible way for these companies like to control your minds. But you you point out that it's really not that, it's more that they're limiting your choice, your, your creative choice in terms of how you entertain yourselves. I would love if you'd be able to expand a bit on that. Sure, I actually wrote another book about this called How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism. Uh, and And it starts from the premise that you know, everyone who's ever claimed to have mind control technology was uh, either a liar or deluded or both. You know, I don't care whether you're Rasputin or the CIA doing MK Ultra or a neurolinguistic programming weirdo or or a, a sad misogynist pickup artist. You don't have mind control. <laughs> and the fact that you think you do doesn't mean that you do. It just means that you are high on your own supply. And so given how elusive mind control has been, and you know, I think we can be thankful for that, um, I, I think that we should treat this as an extraordinary claim requiring extraordinary proof. And the proof for, for mind control using ad tech is the only thing extraordinary about it is how thin it is. Uh, you have... Uh, you know, discredited uh, uh, behaviorist ideas of B.F. Skinner that have been supplanted by other ideas. You have um, experiments like the famous Facebook um, manipulation experiment where they tried to convince people to vote by showing them uh, convincers about other people in their social graph who'd voted. They experimented on 60 million people and they got a couple hundred thousand of them more than they expected to go out and vote, which sounds very impressive. A couple hundred thousand votes would would sway uh, most elections, uh, at, at least at the local and state level, what isn't said is that that a uh, couple hundred thousand was out of 60 million. It was a 0.4 something percent effect size, which is to say, like in any given election, if you were to make this intervention, you would expect one or fewer voters to to show up at the polls, uh, depending on whether you're rounding up or down as a result of this intervention. Now, the fact that, you know, Facebook is doing non-consensual psychological experiments on 60 million people at a time does disqualify it from running anything, you know, including a lemonade stand. But it doesn't mean they can do it. It just means that they're, you know, they have a howling void where their moral center should be. But it doesn't mean they're good at anything. Um, and, you know, the one thing that ad uh, agencies and people in the ad industry have always been really good at is convincing other people that they should buy ads from them. You know, Wanamaker of Wanamaker's department store very famously said, half my advertising spending is wasted. I just don't know which half, which is amazing because his ad agency convinced him that he was only wasting half of his advertising. Um, we know that it's a lot more than that. In fact, one of the first things we learned once we got the ability to measure advertising performance with the web 
was just how extraordinarily ineffective it is. You know, um, Procter and Gamble eliminated its one hundred million dollar per year online advertising spend and saw no difference in its sales. Uh, the, that money presumably just went nowhere. Um, uh, you know, and and increasingly we're learning that a lot of that money went to pay for ads that were never shown to anyone, which is another problem here. But what the duopoly in ad tech, which is Facebook and Google, do, and what the um, uh, the uh, monopoly over um, apps that Google and, and uh, Apple have in respect to their mobile platforms, what they do is they allow firms to decide how you're going to live your life, right? If you decide that you're going to quit Facebook because you don't like the way uh, it it orders your feed, you don't like the fact that the friends that you care about are, are uh, shoved in underneath a mountain of paid uh, material and advertising and so on. Um, you don't get to take your friends with you. You don't get to continue to send messages with them. It's like it's like moving out of the. It's actually it's even worse than moving out of the Soviet Union in the in the seventies or sixties. My my grandmother was a Soviet refugee. She could still send mail to St. Petersburg to Leningrad. It's like it's like moving out of North Korea, where you know once you leave, there's no way to send a message home. That's not because of a limitation in the technology. It's because Mark Zuckerberg is like the social media equivalent of Kim Jong-il. Uh, and he doesn't want to let you go, right? And just like Kim Jong-il, he says that he's doing it for your own good. Um, you know, that the, the walls that he's built around Facebook are like the Berlin Wall that was there not to keep the people of East Germany in, but to keep all of the decadent Westerners out of the workers' paradise that they were clamoring to enter. Uh, and, and so, yeah, by depriving you of choice... They really do get to manipulate your experience. You know, if Google shows you the wrong uh, length for the Brooklyn Bridge when you search how long is the Brooklyn Bridge, and it makes the first six pages of results people who repeat whatever is in the info box when you type how long is the Brooklyn Bridge, and you have to go seven pages before you get to someone who has the correct length of the Brooklyn Bridge, provided that the wrong answer isn't like a thousand light years or six inches, you will probably just believe whatever Google tells you is the correct length of the Brooklyn Bridge. doesn't matter whether or not Google is right about the length of the Brooklyn Bridge. That doesn't require brainwashing. That just requires being the sole source of information for most people, which they get not by merely having a good search engine, but also by giving Apple sort of $20 billion a year, more or less, to be the default search engine in, in Safari and iOS, um, by uh, doing illegal deals with Facebook to limit ad tech spend so they become a kind of preferred platform for analytics and advertising. Um, all of these things uh, co com uh, contribute to making Google the only place we look for information. And that means that if Google decides to lie to us or makes mistakes, that those lies and those mistakes end up being things that we take as gospel. This is Rosie Tran from Rosie and BJ Save the World, a podcast asking big questions and discussing how to solve these big issues. This is a podcast for people just like you who ask, has the war on drugs been successful? Do we need universal basic income? Should we legalize sex work? Go to rosieandbjsavetheworld.com to get more confused. Now, let me ask you before we, before we wrap up, because I, I mean, I've been following your work for years, so I know like how how well researched everything. But I'm curious, was there anything that surprised you in constructing choke point capitalism? Was there anything that you were kind of like, oh, that's a new one? So I, I did not understand the origin story of Spotify. So I kind of understood that 
all of the talk about how Spotify was an evil tech company that was ripping off artists by paying them very low rates was not the whole story. But I didn't quite understand that when Spotify got started, because all the music had been gathered into Warner Universal and and Sony, they couldn't um, actually launch without Warner Universal and Sony coming on. And as a condition of of licensing their catalog to Spotify, the the big three labels took uh, giant equity stakes in Spotify. Spotify had to just give them big chunks of the company, which then put them in this really grotesque conflict of interest because as both shareholders of Spotify and licensors to Spotify, every dollar they took out of Spotify in licensing revenue, which is to say money that they should share with their artists, was a dollar they couldn't take out of it in dividends, which is money that they just could give to their shareholders without having to share with their artists. And that these extraordinarily low per stream rates that we hear so much about were actually insisted upon by the big three labels. They required it. Not only did they require it, but when Spotify was about to have its IPO, right, when they were there and, and when the big three had them really over a barrel because Spotify could not go public unless they had deals in place for, for the big three's catalog, the big three got to renegotiate their deal and they didn't hold out for more money. They actually took less money because they wanted Spotify to have a more attractive balance sheet on the way into the IPO. Um, now, not only did they do all of that, but they negotiated most favored nation status with Spotify, which meant that Spotify could not pay anyone else more than they were paying the big three, which meant that every other label, an independent musician that wasn't in the 70% of music controlled by the big three, they had to take the same terms as the big three, but the big three we're getting guaranteed minimum monthly payout. So if you're Sony, you might get $10 million a month, but because you've set this extraordinarily low per stream rate, all of the streams from Sony that were streamed over the course of the month only add up to $5 million. The other 5 million in your minimum monthly guarantee is what's called an unattributable royalty, which you can give to all artists, some artists, one artist, no artist. It's yours to spend as you will. And you know, if you've ever gone down to like a Kearney Midway or like a, 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 a county fair, you'll see that there's like one guy who's won the giant teddy bears wandering around all day lugging this goddamn teddy bear. And the reason the Carney let him get three balls in the peach basket to win that teddy bear is that guy walking around all day is a convincer for everyone else who goes and pays two bucks to throw balls at the, the peach basket. And, um, you know, when Joe Rogan gets $100 million, Spotify can tell a story about it being a great way to make money as a podcaster. But Joe Rogan's just the guy with the giant teddy bear, right? And the money that goes out to the superstar headline artists that the labels have is often pulled out of those unattributable royalty pools specifically to bring more artists in and to deflect regulatory scrutiny and public anger at the label's treatment of the artists. Um, and, and, you know, the... the um, last thing I'll say about Spotify that I didn't understand going in was the way that they actually divide up the royalties based on the streams you've listened to. So if you've got like some band you listen to in high school that you just love, some obscure hometown band, you know, the honey roasted landlords, and you just like stream them all day for your $15 a month, eight hours a day, Spotify then remits money to your label, which gets a package of money on behalf of you and your listening but they don't give it to the honey roasted landlords. The honey roasted landlords probably don't get any of it. What your label does, what the label does is they add up all the money that Spotify gave them. They add up all the streams of their artists. And it turns out that Kendrick Lamar or Britney Spears or, um, uh, uh, or, or, or JLo 
are responsible for a lot more streams than the honey roasted landlords. And when you divide the money up proportionally among all the artists, the honey roasted landlords get effectively nothing. And so that I think is something that surprised a lot of us. I think a lot of us understood that the musicians we love might not get much money from our listening habits on Spotify. I don't think we understood that the musicians we love might not get any money from our listening on Spotify and that it might go to musicians we don't like at all. In fact, it might go to musicians who don't need any more money, who've got more money than they know what to do with. That's, that's very true. Uh, let me ask you real quick. So I, I know there was a Kickstarter for Chokepoint Capitalism. I, I was part of that. Uh, and oh, thank you. Where where can people buy the book now? Like, is it now out? Mm -hmm. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Kickstarter was for the audiobook because um, Audible uh, is one of those platforms that's rampant with wage theft and also locks listeners in permanently using digital rights management. So we pre-sold the book and the print book and the Kickstarter, but it was really to raise money for the audiobook, which is now out. You can get it anywhere except Audible, which I know is like saying, you know, you can you can. Uh, drive your car anywhere except a paved road. Uh, but but um, there are other platforms. Uh, there's Libro.fm and Google Play and uh, there's Downpour. And if you go to craphound.com slash shop, that's my own web store where you can buy it. But you can buy it in any of those places, uh, audiobooks.com, just basically anywhere except Audible and Apple Books, which is just the front end for Audible when it comes to uh, audiobooks. Um, the print book you can buy anywhere books are sold. The ebook you can buy anywhere ebooks are sold. It's available for the Kindle because Amazon does not lock you in on the Kindle. You can opt to have digital rights management free ebooks and in all of the places where it's sold it goes without saying there's no restrictions no digital rights management you can move it from one platform to another convert it lend it to your friends um you can donate it to your library when you're done reading it you know any of those things so um you can get the book anywhere yeah, and i recommend the audiobook that you know i've been using libro for a while now but uh the narrator is terrific and i found it was it was really helpful in getting through because there's so much like it's so uh -huh. comprehensive that I feel like having the audio edition really makes it accessible yeah. to, to such a wide audience. So I, I can't thank you enough for Oh, well, for that. thank you. Yeah, the reader there, Stefan Rudnicki, he's narrated over a thousand audiobooks. He's won Grammys. He's won Hugo Awards. He's won Emmys. He's won, you know, all kinds of prizes. He's a classically trained uh, actor. And um, he is the co-owner of a local independent studio that I've used for a lot of my books, Skyboat Media. He, you, if you're a science fiction fan, you might know him as the voice of Ender from Ender's Game. Uh, he's got a beautiful, deep voice. I actually had one reader who wrote to me and said, the voice is too deep and it bothers me. I want a <laughs> refund. So I gave them a refund. <laughs> oh, I, th I thought his voice was perfect, honestly. I like it too. It's got a lot of character. It's got like a sense of gravity to it. Um, yeah, he's he's amazing. That's his speaking voice too. It's a, like just, just, you know, talking about what you want on your burger with him is is quite an experience. <laughs> I love it. I, and again, I can't for people for people listening, I'll make sure to link to all of them. Um, OK, this That's was great. terrific. I, I really Thank appreciate you. you taking the time to chat with me. Most things people hate about the internet comes from a lack of privacy, like those creepy ads that make you think your phone is listening to you. DuckDuckGo is an all-in-one privacy app that can help you with that. It's your internet browser with private search, tracking blocker, encryption, and even built-in email protection, all for free. Just go to DuckDuckGo.com to learn more. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified. Thank you for listening to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weibo.tv special report. I'm your host, Rosie Tran. 
Today's episode was written by BJ Mendelson, produced by Andrew Van Voris, and sponsored by DuckDuckGo. Due to the overwhelming demand for privacy audits, we want to make a quick announcement before we go. Doing one-on-one privacy audits is super time-consuming. This means BJ has less time to write these episodes and the new book, How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So, along with his co-author, Amanda King, BJ is currently putting together an online course called Stupid Sexy Privacy, which you'll be able to purchase here at stupidsexyprivacy.com. The course will walk you through every privacy tactic discussed in today's episode in greater detail. The email address again is bjmendelson at duck.com. And we'll see you next time, right? Right?